Hello, everyone. I'm Ronnie McBrayer, and I thank you for finding my podcast. Here you will find my regular talks, the occasional interview, hopefully a little light from the Enneagram time to time, and hear conversations with friends on the ever-changing, ever-evolving nature of faith. If you are burned out on religion, to quote Eugene Peterson's marvelous paraphrase, but your faith is still important to you, or if you consider yourself a spiritual exile with no real place of belief to call home, then I have you especially in mind, and I hope you'll stick around. It was October 30th, 1938. A young 23-year-old Orson Welles was at the microphone inside a small CBS radio studio in New York City. He was the lead voice, and what a voice he had, for the Mercury Theater, a radio show that reinterpreted and dramatized classical books for the audio, for the radio audience. Things like Treasure Island, Sherlock Holmes, Dracula, Oliver Twist. But on this Sunday evening before Halloween, Wells wanted something different. He chose as the act for the night an adaptation of H.G. Wells's novel, The War of the Worlds. That novel is set in Great Britain. It's an early work of science fiction, and it depicts a Martian invasion of the British Empire, with aliens trampling all over London with heat rays and chemical weapons. Orson Welles, no relation to the British author, grounded his story, however, in Grover Mills, New Jersey. An excerpt from Orson Welles' reading that night. He comes on the air. Ladies and gentlemen, I have a grave announcement to make. Incredible as it may seem, both the observations of science and the evidence of our eyes leads to the inescapable assumption that those strange beings who landed in the New Jersey farmlands tonight are the vanguard of an invading army from the planet Mars. The battle which took place tonight at Grover's Mill has ended in one of the most startling defeats suffered by an army in modern times. 7,000 men armed with rifles and machine guns pitted against a single fighting machine of the, of the invaders from Mars, and there are only 120 known survivors. There were 32 million people listening to that radio broadcast that night. Many were without television. All were without Twitter or Google, or news feeds, or smartphones, or text messages with which to communicate and observe in real time. New York City and beyond was thrown into terrifying chaos and panic because many did not know that it was an act, a dramatization. The Mercury Theater had only been on the air for about 12 weeks. They only had about a dozen shows under their belt, and they had just moved to that Sunday night slot. They were not a known commodity, and people tuning in late thought it was the news. Telephone lines were clogged. Police stations were overrun. National Guard units were put on alert. Anxious mobs filled the streets. Churches ran over with impromptu prayer meetings. Citizens barricaded and armed themselves. One New Jersey citizen stopped to warn a friend and then said, I got to go now. The world is coming to an end and I've got an awful lot to do. 
It was a type of unnerving that simply could not be duplicated today. Research journals, doctoral dissertations, multiple volumes of books have been written on the fear, the paranoia, the social upheaval unveiled by Wells and his cast on that single October night. Now, no one involved in War of the Worlds, uh, no one at CBS Radio intended to deceive any listeners because they all found the story so silly and so improbable that no one would really take it seriously. But at the last-minute rehearsals, just hours before they went on the air, Wells found some kind of muse. He beat the script and verbally beat his staff and collaborators and beat this thing into a work of art, and it was an outburst of creativity and innovation that succeeded beyond any of their imaginations. And of course, it launched the career of Orson Welles. Within weeks, the Mercury Theater would go off the air. Not because it had failed, but because it had succeeded wildly. And Wells would relocate to Hollywood and was producing, directing, and starring in Citizen Kane within two years, still regarded as the greatest movie ever produced in Hollywood. So one could say that Wells' career was the product of a chaotic accident. The performance colliding with his listeners' paranoia. And it is an intoxicating combination. Impassioned, enthusiastic communication that meets susceptible, vulnerable ears. It's what drives populist movements. It's what fuels propaganda and conspiracy. It undergirds most of the United States political system. It is the force behind manipulative and unhealthy religion. It moves the machinery of mistrust, fear, and suspicion. Someone who is a passionate communicator speaking to an already paranoid audience, it causes people to build bunkers around their lives. Looking at every outsider or person whom is different than them as an enemy, a threat, or an invader. And once the threat level is high enough, of course, action has to be taken. The threat must be removed, the enemy repelled, and the invader uprooted. If you study sociology, psychology, anthropology, history, theology, these disciplines all tell the same story. Once fear becomes the motivating energy of a person's life or an entire society, There is no calculation as to how far the harm and the destruction will reach. It's true of those listening to a radio broadcast almost a century ago, true of those who feel as if their values and way of life are eroding, true of those in the pews who are often subjected to fear-mongering doctrine and preaching and instruction. It's bad for an individual's well-being. It's bad for the cohesion of a community when fear becomes the primary drive of one's thoughts and behaviors. Last week, I, I quoted Brian Brett, farming is a profession of hope. As hate and apathy are the opposite of love, As certainty and rigidity are the opposite of faith, so fear and desperation are the opposite of hope. 
if I might move from aliens to agriculture, from Mars to farming, no farmer stays at the work he or she is doing if they are dominated by fear. What if there's a drought? What if there is a flood? What if there's blight? What if the commodity markets tank in the next quarter? Well, all those things are possible, not only possible, but probable. And you can't do much about those things, but it doesn't stop the farmer from going back to his crop and planting seeds again and again because the farmer believes in the harvest. The farmer believes in the future. Hope is not wishful thinking. Hope is resilience and perseverance to do the right thing knowing that it will pay off in the future. That's what hope is. And fear When we let fear motivate us, there's no place left for real hope because we become so despondent, so afraid, so paranoid even. Now, it doesn't mean the farmer is never afraid because we get afraid, but fear is not his or her motivation. It doesn't mean that you don't despair because grief and lament are necessary. It means you go back planting those seeds again and again and helping things to grow. So let's dig into this story of Jesus called the wheat and the weeds. Now, when I was a kid growing up, it was in the King James Bible, it was the wheat and the tares, T-A-R-E-S. I never, I put tares right in there with sheaves. I don't know what a tear is. It's a weed, but they didn't tell us that. And this was a real, real favorite text of the fire and brimstone preachers of my childhood. They loved this story. Why? Well, it's so black and white. Some are in us. Some are out them. There's joy for some, punishment for others. Some are going to make it to heaven, but most are not. This parable was, and it remains, a phenomenal revivalistic tool. It gives that full-throated endorsement to accept Jesus to escape hell gospel because it seems like that's all Jesus is good for, a little fire insurance for the end. And it is a fear-dominated and a fear-dominating narrative. It is a world, it is a war of the world's anxiety. The constant single-faceted admonition and I can quote it still to this day because I heard it so many times growing up, to escape the fires of hell prepared for the devil and his angels, where the fire is not quenched and the worm dieth not and the smoke of that pit rises up forever and ever. (laughs) Heard that a few times. (laughs) This constant single-faceted admonition to avoid hell as the only thing that Jesus came for does not make for mature Christians. It does not make for a spiritually healthy person. It makes for paranoia. It makes for fear. Because how can you ever learn to trust in God? A God so angry and emotionally retrograded that he has to torture the majority of creation to resolve his own internal moral fragmentation. That's a hard God to trust. I had problems with it early on even as I was suffering from the anxiety of it all. So this story is 
not given so that Jesus is telling evangelists that here is how you manipulate people into a decision to follow me. Rather, this is a parable about living a fruitful life now and leaving the consequences to God. That's what this story is about. Jesus confirms that there are indeed two kinds of plants growing in the soil of this world. The people of God who will one day be harvested into God's arms and the bad plants sprung from bad seeds sown by the devil himself they will one day meet their end as well, cast onto the furnace. We should amend that to say the trash heap. I use that term intentionally. Jesus uses the word Gehenna here, which is a deep, narrow valley south of Jerusalem. Gehenna was Jerusalem's trash dump. It's where you took out the garbage. And our English Bibles often translate things about the fiery furnace. Jesus is saying it's all going to the landfill. It's refuse. So what is Jesus saying here? The key to interpreting this story is verses 28 through 30. I wonder if we can get that scripture slide back for just a second. The workers ask, should we pull out the weeds? No. You'll uproot the wheat if you do. Let both grow together until the harvest. Here is the key to this entire story. Good and bad exist in this world. And don't let anyone ever tell you that evil is not real. It is real. And it's going to be present in our world for as long as this world exists. There is good, there is bad, there is right, there is evil. And sometimes they're all twisted up together in the same places. And if you... Take it upon yourself as your responsibility to sort it out yourself. You will do more damage than good in the long run. Because anytime there is a movement to purify, to make right, to get rid of the outsider, anytime there is such a movement like that, the innocent and the good always get swept up in the process as well. I quoted a Hank Williams song last week. Do you remember? <laughs> I saw the light. Here's another one for you. It's to the tune, Move It On Over, which is a great Hank Williams song. And it's one he wrote called Mind Your Own Business. Why don't you mind your own business? Then you won't be minding mine. And on a live recording of his, he's on a radio program. Go see this on YouTube that he hosted, and he introduces the song by saying this. Here's a little masterpiece of nonsense I wrote a few years ago. A lot of folks request, request this song for others, but hardly nobody requests it for themselves. If you mind your own business, you won't have time to be messing around with mine. You want to be a happy farmer? You want to be a happy person? Mind your own crop. Mind your own business. Mind your own row. Cultivate what you've got going on. And don't worry so much about what's going on down the street that your neighbor is doing. We are such a critical society now that we, it, we think that we have to comment on everything. 
that we have to take on and disagree forcefully with everything that we find disagreeable. And yes, we should speak against evil. Yes, we should combat evil. But evil is going to be present with us all the time. And so much of the battles that we choose to fight, we do more harm than good because we get down in the gutter and fight at the same level of the things that we find reprehensible. As followers of Jesus, we cannot go into the world thinking that we know who is in and who is out. That's absolutely the majority of most preaching today, though, isn't it? Oppose evil, speak against it, protect the vulnerable from it, but you're never going to get rid of it. And we have to be careful that in our moral superiority that we don't hurt people in the process. It's a severe example, but it works all the same. And it's one I've given before. In the summer of 1692, 20 men and women were put to death in the village of Salem, Massachusetts for the alleged crime of witchcraft. The majority were hanged from the gallows. But a couple were pressed to death, having heavy stones rolled over them until they burst open. 13 more of the accused died in prison before they could be tried, and hundreds were caught up in accusation, brought up on charges as the religious hysteria machine ran roughshod over New England. And it all originated in one little church at Salem, Massachusetts. What was it all about? Well, besides the possibility that the colony was eating rye bread tainted with what we now call LSD, fear. Paranoia, getting rid of those considered evil when every last person executed was innocent. And I've said this for years. I said this within three months of Simple Faith launching. And my mistake has been that I thought things would cool, but they have not. They've only intensified. I've said this for years. There is very little difference this morning between a jihadist and some Bible-thumping fundamentalist. If they had the power, they would do exactly what was done at Salem and worse. Fear-driven religion always ends at such places, and it doesn't matter which religion it is. And those committing injustice against the innocent do so with a clear conscience because they think they have God on their side when they are doing it. Well, the irony, the tragic irony at Salem, Massachusetts, is that they were told better. A spiritual hero of mine, a mentor from across time, was the pastor of that little village church a few decades before the witch trials. His name was Roger Williams, preacher, theologian, champion of religious liberty. He said things like this from that pulpit. God does not require uniformity in religion. To enforce uniformity is to deny the very principles of Christianity. Forcing a person to be converted is like compelling an unwilling spouse to enter into a forced bed. It is nothing less than the rape of a person's soul. God does not need the sword of steel to assist the sword of the Spirit in the affairs of conscience. One generation before the Salem witch trials, 
Roger Williams said that in the pulpit of the Salem Church. And it almost got him killed. He was excommunicated from the church and from the Massachusetts colony. A plan was devised to kidnap him and to return him to England where he would be burned at the stake. They were afraid of killing him on American soil lest they make him a martyr. He was tipped off. He escaped into the wilderness where he was taken in by the Native American tribes. John Winthrop, founder of Massachusetts, sent a word to Roger Williams telling him to repent. Tell everyone that what you were saying is wrong, then you can come home and not have to live in fear. And Roger Williams responded with the best line I have ever heard in all of my life. This I cannot do, for I am now safer among the Christian savages than I am among you savage Christians. Roger lived there until he could purchase just a little piece of land from the Narragansett tribe, an island of sorts, he said, in the midst of the Puritans. It became Rhode Island. And there he welcomed the first Quakers, the first Jews, the first Anabaptists, the first atheist to the continent. And while Roger did not agree with all of their beliefs, he still believed that these people, all people, should choose and express their faith according to their own conscience. As that great old Baptist from Oklahoma, Herschel Hobbes, put it, quote, the church cannot fasten its iron grip upon a man's soul. It deprives him of his greatest dignity, which is the right of free choice in his relationship to God. This is the worst of all tyrannies, and it is made worse by the claim to be in the name of God, who created men and women to be free. And this freedom extends to conscious. And maybe it is because of Roger Williams. Maybe it is because of the hard shell Appalachian Baptist raising of mine. Maybe it is because I believe that a gospel that is all about hell evasion is the gospel run amok. But I have come to the core conclusion that we need to give people some breathing room and some growing room. We must back off Show some respect. Leave room for God's grace and God's work and God's spirit and exchange the tactics of fear and threat and anger for the quiet, simple, fruitful life in Christ. A life of faith, hope, and love. Let's try this week, when Monday morning rolls around tomorrow, Not to pick up the paper or our phone or turn on the news to discover what exactly we should be angry about this week. Because that's the easy way. The farmer goes to the soil and sows the seeds day after day after day in hope because that farmer believes in a future, not in despair.